Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is always the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, we are trying to make sense of the senseless. In the wake of last week's video release exposing the brutal killing of Tyree Nichols, we're going to talk with retired LAPD Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey and author of the book Black and Blue, The Creation of a Social Advocate. Sergeant Dorsey will help us get a better understanding of the culture of policing in America and what needs to change so that the police truly serve all the people they're sworn to protect. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Hi, Jen. You're you're in a hotel room in San Francisco right now. (laughs) Yes, it's true. I'm traveling, but not traveling very far from home, which is nice. There you go. Doing the good work you do with your amazing Way to Win organization. Seeing people in person. It's a thing. It's a thing we're doing now. I like it. I I like being in community with our brothers and sisters in this work. I mean, it's it's really that's where we find the joy in it. You know, it's been something missing in the work that we've been doing for a long time. It's uh, you can't you can't find that sense of community in a Zoom, and you can't go exactly. out to coffee with 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 like the one person in the Zoom that you really want to go like have coffee with later. You can't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's been a hard week, another hard week in the news. I know I have really been thinking a lot about Tyree Nichols and. I guess, I mean, just being honest, it's really been hard for me this week. Like, I can't wrap my mind around it, honestly. Yeah. Can't wrap my my mind around it. It's not something that anyone should be able to wrap their mind around because it's so, uh, it's so violent and grotesque and heartbreaking, Um, you know, and, and we see it. We see it again and again, and I, you know, we were talking about beforehand. Uh, it was the Rodney King video was the first time that we saw, you know, that kind of brutality captured on videotape. But it wasn't the first time it happened. Far from it. Uh, and now technology has just caught up to this heinousness that is at the core of a lot of policing right now. Um, where we just see uh, bright, young, beautiful lives extinguished at the hands of uh, police officers, you know, and the yeah. the, the cover-up over it and attempted cover-up. Uh, but, you know, how do you, how do you yeah. respond to something that, that you know, George Floyd's murder, you know, kicked off a, a summer of, of protests and um, uh, a call for action— uh, that was met with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and then blocked by the Republicans and not able to be passed. Right. What is it going to take for us to really transform how we think about safety in our communities, how we think about it as more of a partnership, right? So that it isn't this idea of a certain group of people policing another group of people. I think that there's just something really fundamentally wrong with it that results in these kinds of tragedies. And I know you're right. There's, it's not the first, we've seen a lot of things, but honestly, for me, I watched a little bit of the video. I didn't watch the whole video, but I saw enough 
where it was just so shocking and so visceral, um, similar to me to the George Floyd murder as well, where you just see the the complete um, dominating brutality that the people who are charged with protecting us would commit on another person, an unarmed person. It was it was really hard, um, and I'm I'm definitely. I'm seeing a lot of action and a lot of um, mobilization happening in the community. And I also know people are tired of mobilizing. People are tired of having to keep going out and protesting. And ultimately, we just we need to come together as a community and just decide what kind of community we're going to be. That's right. So um, our heart goes out. This is a a really uh, hard time to see this again and again. we always try to look at what we can do. Um, there's renewed calls uh, for the George Floyd mm-hmm. uh, Justice and Policing Act, which, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, it did pass in the Democratic-controlled House in 2021, but failed yeah. in the Senate. Um, it would limit qualified immunity policies that protect officers accused of misconduct, create a national registry of sustained disciplinary actions against officers, ban chokeholds, and limit no-knock warrants. Uh, among other measures, um, mm-hmm. look, I'm I'm not going to live in this Pollyanna world where I, I I see this Republican-controlled Congress as passing this. But um, there are mm-hmm. there are elements that have to happen to make social change, and it's having lawmakers with the will to do it, and then it's having public sentiment to back it up, and mm-hmm. uh, and you need both. So we may not have the lawmakers right there with the will to, to pass it right now, but the public sentiment can't let up. So I'm uh, asking everyone to call your reps and tell them to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Call your Congress people, call your senators, Call your state reps. Call your your mm-hmm. local city council members. Uh, policing is so complex. There are so many different agencies uh, with their own set of rules around uh, how they engage, and um, and you know just make your voices heard. Uh, we have to continue to let people know that this is not acceptable and it has to change. It is important when we have the bully pulpit at the presidential level and at the Senate level, even though we don't have control of the House and we maybe can't really bring this bill up. I do agree with you that it's important for the for the community, for the citizens to have their voices be heard. And so that the folks who are in Congress uh, on our side can at least report, you know, we've gotten so many phone calls. This is something people really care about. We can press them on it. We can push them on it, even if we can't necessarily bring the vote in the House. Biden can talk about it. He can call for it, maybe yeah. in the State of the Union address. And maybe the Senate can start to move on it and show that this is something that the Democrats are standing for so that we can build more of that groundswell of support. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, we're, we're going to get into more of that with uh, Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation. She's, gonna, uh, she's an LAPD uh, veteran, and, and um, uh, she'll have a lot of constructive things to say, I'm sure, um, and I'm grateful for her voice in this. So, um, uh, But before we do that, let's talk about um, some more legal trouble for uh, the former guy, um, mm-hmm. which is a nice palate cleanser. Topic. 
<laughs> favorite topic, exactly. Uh, Manhattan prosecutors have begun presenting the Trump case to their grand jury. Uh, I'll read this from the New York Times. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office on Monday began presenting evidence to a grand jury about Donald J. Trump's role in paying hush money to a porn star during his 2016 presidential campaign, laying the groundwork for potential criminal charges against the former president in the coming months, according to people with knowledge of the matter. Wow. That'd be great. <laughs> perhaps, that, perhaps the stormy <laughs> is coming. I don't know. That's that was a. I mean, you love to see it, don't you? And it feels like the more legal trouble he can get into in more places with as many different um, kinds of trouble feels important to maybe him finally getting some accountability for all the horrible things he's done. I mean, how many how many know. grand juries does he have? Go, you know, like hearing stuff like against him. Five, right? It's just incredible. <laughs> yeah. How many grand juries know. do you have hearing evidence against you, Jennifer? I don't have any grand juries. Zero. About yeah, me yeah. too. Me too. I see. I, I didn't think that was, I didn't think that was a common thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. Like, let's, let's keep our popcorn ready. Always. Whenever, when, we talk about Trump. Um, yeah. And another another popcorn moment I saw this week was reporting from Axios about Trump, one of Trump's first rallies that he has been doing across the country. This one was in New Hampshire. The headline was Trump's sleepy start to 2024. So um, he's getting a lot uh, fewer people in attendance. He's not getting as much attention. He's not get even really getting any energy from the crowds as they're what they're saying. And so while it's kind of a good thing, we like to see Trump not succeeding, right? Because we don't want him in our lives anymore. Nope. But at the same time, it's a little scary to see the way that the media is really propping up Ron DeSantis, mm. who is just as bad as Trump. I mean, if not worse, honestly. Yeah, All exactly. Of these extreme republicans are terrible but they but it's like you know how the media always needs a foil they're mm. using desantis as their foil to trump and giving him a lot of airtime, and that's going to help drive up his positives and we can't be sure that trump's going to win the nomination he could easily go down in flames in lots of different ways and so it's just something i think to watch out for just to not let DeSantis become a viable alternative to Trump that the media then thinks is okay. Yeah, I mean, what DeSantis is doing in Florida is uh, is horrific. There's no other way to describe it. I mean, I don't know if you saw videos of uh, kids' libraries books just um, mm -hmm. emptied out. You know, the the banning, yeah. the don't say gay bill, the, the hateful attack against the LGBTQ community, banning. The, the study of African-American history. It's Trump 2.0 and, um, and Trump, yeah. you know, Trump did stuff in such a ham-handed way. Um, yeah. But, uh, but DeSantis is, is really getting these policies implemented in Florida and um, it's... He's and, winning. Yeah, he is right I now. I mean, he, he, he does, yeah, he did so much better in 2022 in Florida than he had done before. So he's, He's actually gaining support, whereas Trump is losing. 
support. So, so something for us to keep watching out Keep for. that in mind. Yeah. Like, you know, pop some popcorn for Trump's legal problems and, uh, and let's not encourage the media to prop up DeSantis, you know, right now either. But it's like, it's so hard for them not to do it. I mean, they just like propping up all of the evil, audacious, horrible voices that are out mm-hmm. there. It's just, that's mm-hmm. what, that's what sells soap. So, um, <laughs> you know, we got to, I guess, stop buying soap. That's probably the wrong way to go about it. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, let's talk about this week's to-do list. Um, there is a fund. We're going to put it in our show notes. It's the Tyree Nichols Memorial Fund. This was put together by his mom. And um, people have already contributed over a million dollars to it. Uh, it's for the family and uh, for legal fees. And they're also going to build a uh, skate park in in his honor Uh in Mm -hmm. in their neighborhood so uh you know it's just so heartbreaking but um you know when you're thinking about what can you do in this moment uh that's a nice thing that you can do is donate to the tyree nichols memorial fund so that's this week's to-do list excellent um let's talk about our reasons for hope jen what is your reason for hope this week well our reasons for hope have kind of a Biden theme to them because I'm <laughs> what I'm going to talk about is that I don't know if you saw last week, the Biden administration is banning mining for 20 years in a really big watershed near Minnesota's boundary waters, canoe area wilderness, which is very exciting. Just another one of his efforts to deliver on conservation to help us keep our wild land, which is super important to our ultimate climate change goals as well. So that was exciting and gives me hope. I I love, I don't know if you read that book, Ministry for the Future, but um, I love the idea in that book that we we have these parts of our land that were kind of rewilded. Like they actually, in the book, um, which is Kim Stanley Robinson's kind of future book um, of dealing with climate change, where they just let the wilderness completely take over different parts of the country and just don't have any humans living there. So I know it's a far, uh, far <laughs> from that reality, but I do think it's cool that the Biden team is taking these steps to make these kinds of conservation efforts permanent. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that excellent book recommendation as well. Uh, I did not know about that. And yeah, let's go, Brandon. I mean, seriously. (laughs) Um, Mine is, uh, my reason for hope is also Biden related. um, And it has to do with the infrastructure money that is, uh, as we have talked about on this show, is starting to come into communities. In this case, uh, it's fixing crucial train tunnels on the East Coast, including a, a tunnel in Baltimore that was built in 1873, when Ulysses S. Grant was president, and uh, and this is really meaningful because, um, you know, I know we love our cars, and uh, you know, I enjoy being in my car all alone away from people too. But if we're really going to be intentional about moving towards a more sustainable future, we need to uh, have reliable rail. We need to have reliable public transit and not rely so much on cars to get around. And um, mm-hmm. and he is 
upgrading these uh, tunnels. You had to go really slow through one of them. Had to go slow down to about 30 miles an hour, and they were always late, and people, uh, you know, weren't using them. It was creating mm-hmm. a log jam. Uh, it's a it's a big deal. It sounds like a, a small deal, but it's going to have a great impact on the environment as people are able to use higher speed rail through those tunnels. And um, and right. it's just another example of the infrastructure money coming home and creating jobs and and helping our environment and and uh, don't let republicans take credit for it because they fought us every step of the way this is what democrats did let's go brandon i never say that but i'm doing it now (laughs) it's dark brandon right isn't it yeah with the lasers shooting out of his eyes Mm -hmm. (laughs) lasers that are creating tunnels for trains to go through (laughs) i love it all right. Well, that's it from us. Uh, again, I'm really grateful to have Cheryl Dorsey on here to, to um, talk about hopefully the future of policing. Uh, so stick around for that. Retired Sergeant Cheryl Dorsey is a 20 year veteran of the Los Angeles P- Police Department and a mother of four sons. She is a police expert with an eye towards social justice and is the author of Black and Blue, The Creation of a Social Advocate. Sergeant Dorsey, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much for your work and your advocacy. Um, I don't have the words to describe what many of us are feeling after watching yet another horrific video of a young man being killed at the hands of police officers this time, Tyree Nichols. Um, let me just start by asking you how you're doing in this moment. Well, you know, I, I was really torn when I knew the video was coming out. You know, I was on the Los Angeles Police Department when Rodney King uh, suffered um, a beating at the hands of four LAPD officers. And so I, I understood, you know, from all of the commentary before the video was released, what was probably going to be on there. And I didn't feel like I needed to see it to understand. I had already kind of been uh, forecasting what I, I thought went on, just knowing police officers, understanding police culture. But I watched it only because I needed to speak from a position of uh, knowing. And um it was it was very troubling. It was hurtful on a number of levels. I, I wear two hats. It it hurt me as a police officer because I know this was another black eye that my uh, occupation was going to suffer, and that this was going to paint all of those officers out there with that broad brush, who are doing a great job day in and day out, who joined these police departments, all eighteen thousand of them across the U.S. for the right reason, mm-hmm. who are treating people ethically humanely with compassion and empathy who are able to relate to the people that they took an oath to protect and serve. And then I switched hats and I'm a black woman. I'm a mother of four sons and it broke my heart. It hurt me deeply because Tyree Nichols could have been my son and to learn later that he was only three doors from his mother's home. And that's the reason he was laying there screaming, mom, mom, hoping that she would hear him and come out. So it was a lot, and it's still a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about your story in policing. Like, what what was it like for you in the LAPD, and and why did you become a social advocate and start speaking out? Such a a hard thing to do. Um, 
uh, when you have this this code with your fellow officers? Well, I joined LAPD in 1980 under Daryl Francis Gates, hmm. and it was a very difficult time for me because the department was under a consent decree. They were forced to hire more women and more minorities. And so uh, the white officers that I worked with, as a matter of fact, a um, little history, LAPD had just recently, uh, before a few years before I joined, changed their badge from policeman because there were females who wore the skirt and they were police women. Interesting. There was a female police officer who sued the Los Angeles Police Department and uh, made it possible for women uh, who were already on the job to go back and get field certified, go back to the police academy, get field certified, and then come back out into the field as a police officer. So they had very recently uh, changed that whole system. And, uh, you know, they were guys who were really upset about that whole badge. You know, they were like, I'm a policeman. I'm not getting no police officer badge. And mm. they just refused. Many of them just refused to get the new badge. And as new officers were hired, you were hired with the police officer badge. And eventually by uh, retirements and attrition or whatever, everybody eventually wound up with that same one, one badge. So, you know, they didn't make it um, a secret that they didn't want to work with me. And, you know, I, I, I joke and say, you know, I was a Me Too movement, you know, way, way before Me Too. Only it was just me. <laughs> um, I uh, was one of two black females in my academy class. I was uh, for a, a few months the only black female working my division when I got off probation. I mean, when I graduated from the police academy. And so um, I had decided when I took that job because I had quit another job that I had to do this. And I was just singularly focused and determined first to make it through the six month police academy. And then my focus became getting off probation because I knew that I was an at will employee until I did. So I had 12 months to figure it out, get her done. And then learning that as a new hire, I could stay on the job for 20 years and then retire at the end of that 20 years with a service pension for the rest of my life. And so my singular focus became making it to the finish line. And that's what I did. I did 20 years and one day and I honorably retired. Wow. Um, you talk about in your book, here's a little quote that's also on your website. The department is meant to tear a police officer down in the academy and then recreate that officer in the image the police department likes. A subtle form of brainwashing occurs for some. Um, policing is very necessary, of course. Uh, we all deserve to be safe in our own communities. And as you mentioned, there are many people like you who join the police force because they want to be of service. And I'm so grateful for those people because I am not built for that job. And I understand that the trauma and PTSD that many cops experience and are experiencing right now. But there is an obvious institutional problem with policing that is rooted in aggression and racism that cannot be denied. So uh, in your experience, like, how can we change that when it's so embedded in the culture of policing? I'm not sure that we can or that we ever will. It's so systemic and it's top down because understand every police chief was once a police officer. And so, you know, you grow up in that system and depending on how you're situated, 
Um, you, you might be one of the good ones, or you might be one of those ones who, you know, we saw on the video with Tyree Nichols, who's more than too willing to acquiesce police misconduct, but you may be connected to the right people because just like any other organization, sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. And you move through the ranks and you get in a position of authority and now you're the one who's looking the other way uh, when your officers engage in police misconduct or you minimize and mitigate that bad behavior. Uh, I like to think that female police chiefs because I think girls rock, get it right, (laughs) and they do a good job. Um, But there's not many female police chiefs. And, you know, in 2020, I believe it was, there six of them were pretty much run out on a rail. And so just because you're a police chief, police chief does not mean that the good old boy system uh, doesn't still come a calling. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's some practical things that we can do. I mean, obviously getting rid of qualified immunity is, uh, uh, seems to be a no brainer. The George Floyd justice and policing act, uh, would be a good start. I'm curious though, um, within departments, like how, how do rank and file officers feel about everything that's going on? Cause there, there is definitely a take care of each other, cover things up if they go wrong kind of culture, but there must be many people uh, like yourself who are sickened by this and 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 see an incident like this as as tarnishing their own work. Um, so is there a concerted will within the rank and file to uh, to change the culture of policing? I would say no, uh, particularly amongst what I call the, the the ground pounders, the patrol officers, which I was one of for twenty years. Um, you know, there's there's two camps and sometimes it's kind of racially divided, you know, uh, officers of color versus white officers uh, who view things very differently sometimes. Um, and then you 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 learn very early on about what to say and what not to say, uh, what opinions to express. And depending on how you're situated individually, uh, if you came on the job as I did, I never bled blue. I always understood I was a black woman when I joined. I didn't care about making friends. And so when I got ostracized because of just me being me, I was okay with it. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody's not set up that way. You know, some people want to be a part of a thing, yeah. and some people will go along to get along. So it just depends from officer to officer just how you're set up personally. But I know for a fact because I did it and, you know, I'm a pretty strong will individual. I'm I'm the kind of girl, I'm a little stubborn. And if you tell me no, well, then I must. And so that was kind of my, you know, mentality. And I think that's what got me through. The other thing that got me through is that because I was a black woman and A lot of the officers didn't want to work with me. They never misbehaved in my presence because they weren't sure if I would back them. You know, that's a big thing in patrols. My partner going to back me. Can I trust them? You got my back? Yeah. You know, and sometimes you got my back means let's get home safe. That's what it meant for me. Let's make sure we go home to our families every night. But sometimes you got my back means if I engage in misconduct, are you good? And we saw a lot of officers who, 
um, acquiesced that kind of foolishness with the Tyree Nichols situation. We saw a lot of officers in a small unit where camaraderie is important. Camaraderie is a big deal on the police department anyway. They, they've always tried to be quasi-military. Yeah. I was never in the military, but I understand now, you know, how police departments try to function like that. And so camaraderie is a big deal. You know, uh, chain of command is a big deal. You, you know, uh, if you're young on the job, you should be seen and not heard like a child. And again, it just depends on how you're situated in terms of how well you do in that system. Yeah. Um, one kind of obvious and huge problem that I see with policing is that the people who serve the communities or are policing the communities uh, are usually not from the communities that they're they're working in. Um, and I understand this from both, it's a problem from both sides. I, 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 f I feel like I mentioned uh, a lot of cops have PTSD and, and they don't feel safe. And so they're, they don't want to live in the community that they're policing. Um, but I think that's an inherent problem where um, obviously if these officers had known who Tyree was, you know, and known that his mom's house was right down the street or had that kind of knowledge, it would have been a different scene, you know. Um, uh, how is, is there a world where we can change how policing has looked like and have it be part of the community and, and, and have officers? I mean, you served all over Los Angeles. You served every, every inch of Los Angeles. Um, is that something that a change that can be made? Well, I think part of it is just um, what's your capacity for empathy and and humanity and relatability to the person that you're dealing with in a moment on a radio call. Um, I think that it's not necessary for a police officer to live in a city to treat the people who live there right. I think community-based policing, which was a big deal when I was on LAPD, uh, certainly did a lot to create that I know you, you know me relationship. I work here, I'm here every day. You live here. And so absent community based policing and given uh, the lack of personnel resources and the volume of radio calls officers nowadays I'm hearing just run from call to call to call to call. So they really don't have time to develop those kind of relationships that um, you know you have when you have a community-based policing situation. I don't think it's imperative that an officer live in a city for officer safety reasons. I would never want to be in the grocery store with my small child and run into somebody who's got beef with me because I took you to jail on a legitimate <laughs> yeah. situation. And now I've got a, you know, soda in one hand and my, my, my son's hand in my other, and I've got to figure out what am I going to do with you? Mm -hmm. So that's why I've never subscribed to, you got to live in the city in order to treat people right. You have to have the right mindset. And that, the way you figure that out is um, by doing a proper background check, which we know uh, now didn't happen with all of those officers that were on the Scorpion unit in the Tyree Nichols case. We're hearing about some of their histories. Um, you need to have officers, I believe, psychologically 
evaluated when you come on like we were, but then never again. And so those psychological evaluations need to occur, I say, every two years. Mm-hmm. Crack open an officer's head, look inside and make sure they're good. And if stuff is not working the way it's supposed to because the officer uh, really didn't have the temperament, uh, doesn't have the skill set, then you need to help them off that department and into another profession that they're better suited for. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, What major company or corporation doesn't have an employee wellness program that doesn't care about their employees? The only one that I'm familiar with is the police department. Yeah. And maybe the NFL, but that's a different thing. But <laughs> yeah. Um, those are really good points. And, and, uh, and we, you know, uh, our police officers are asked to do things that they are not trained to do, that they um, did not sign up to do, that they're not, you know, frankly qualified to do when it comes to intervening in, in a lot of situations that you're called to intervene in. Um, and, uh, and I feel like more investment in the community resources, mental health resources, uh, education, certainly, um, all of that uh, would serve the communities better than uh, sending a militarized force in to intervene in, in, in many of these instances. Well, certainly the core is important, right? Because if your core is rotten, then everything else yeah. is going to be problematic. And I know that there's a lot of talk about, you know, police officers and, and um, you know, dealing with people who are in mental health crisis. And while, you know, it sounds sexy to say we're not going to send the police if someone's in crisis. That's great. But when a mental health professional gets there and that person is armed with a butcher knife <laughs> or a gun, they're going to call the police. Yeah. And then the police are going to come and do what the police do. And so it's important to make sure that the officers are well trained because they're going to get called. No medical professional is going to deal with someone who's violent and armed. Even when we would respond to radio calls, the paramedics might be right there, but they just stand and patiently watch until we get this armed, violent, dangerous individual in handcuffs. My my job is to do that quickly, reasonably. And now the paramedic will come in and deal with them. And so the same is true of someone who's in mental crisis. That's why it's important to make sure that you have the officers with the right uh, temperament and mindset, officers who care about people. Yeah, those are great points. Uh, All right. Well, uh, we have one last question that we ask all of our guests, um, and uh, it's a hard one right now. (laughs) Uh, We always ask our guests, what gives you hope for the future? Um, I'll, I'll ask you what gives you hope or or do you have hope for change in the future? I hate to say this. I'm a cop. <laughs> and right now I'm kind of hopeless. I, I, I've been hopeless, really, um, since 2014 when there was a spate of deadly police uses of force, beginning with Mike Brown and Eric Garner and Tamir Rice and uh, Ezell Ford in Los Angeles and John Crawford. Uh, All of those people lost their lives at the hands of police in 2014, and really nothing has changed. Um, But what gives me hope is that um, I have the strength, the ability, the knowledge, and the credibility to speak on these issues regularly. I have a platform so I can educate others. And in my mind's eye, I'm deputizing all of these community members to go out and ask the right questions of your 
um, elected officials, uh, of the police chiefs who serve at the pleasure of those elected officials to get the kind of change that you want in your community. I wanna be a recruitment tool for anybody, um, particularly people of color, folks who look like me, to join these police departments because I believe the change is gonna come from the inside. And so I want folks who look like me, who often hear at home FTP, to know that it's an honorable profession. Uh, it's one that you can do uh, ethically, safely, and you can be that change that you want to see in your neighborhoods on that department. You can be the one who's there to tell that errant officer that's enough get off of them because that's what a good partner does. And so that's what gives me hope. That's really powerful. Uh, as I said, to begin with, I'm very, very grateful for your work. And um, uh, it does feel hopeless, especially in moments like these, but um, but we must persevere. We must move forward. And, uh, you know, because we have lives to save out there. We It's enough. We, we, we can't let this keep happening. So Thank you for your work, and it's a great call to action uh, for people to step up and, and do bold things. I, I appreciate that, too. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We would love to hear from you. Please send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or tweet to us at HowWeWinPod, at BluesBoySteve, and at Jen and Kona. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods, and share our show with your friends and family. Jen, I am really excited about next week's show. It's going to be a good one. So <laughs> everyone join us back for more next Wednesday. W.